The scripture today is Genesis 14. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedileomer, king of Elam, and Tedal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedileomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedileomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Raphaim in Ashtaroth Karnim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Sheva Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in, in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out. And they joined in battle in the valley of Sidim with Kedileomer, king of Elam, Tedal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedileomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted, up my, lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, 
Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. And thus ends the reading of Genesis 14. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Lord, we ask now for your blessing on the sermon. Pray that you would strengthen my voice, that you would give us all ears to hear, and that we would be doers of the word of the living God. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have ever read a Where's Waldo book? That's all? Try again. How many of you have read a Where's Waldo? Okay. I had a couple more, yeah. Where's Waldo book? Okay. Um, well, to say that such a book can be read is a little bit of an overstatement. Why? Because it's actually a, a picture book. And the entire goal, if you're not familiar with Where's Waldo, or it's been a long time since you've had young children in your home, is to find a funny little man named Waldo who's been cleverly disguised in a great big picture. And more often than not, I wish that our children, we have three young boys, um, had longer attention spans, more often than not. Uh, but in the case of Where's Waldo, I actually would like to see their attention span shorten because I get tired very quickly of finding Waldo. And I, I've mentioned that children's book series before because I think it's actually a pretty helpful illustration of a uh, way that we often approach stories in the Bible. So we, we listen to stories like the one Bob just read, and, and we immediately ask, where am I in here? Maybe you've done that. I've, I've done that. Is, is there anything that people like Abram and Lot are going through right now that seems relevant to my challenges, my life, my experiences? I, I call that the Where's Waldo approach to Scripture. Now, lest you think I'm shooting that down, on one level, asking, where am I in this story, is a really good thing to do. Why do I say that? Because what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is useful for what? For teaching, for rebuking, for training in righteousness, correcting us. It, it makes a claim on our lives. I'm not standing up here to entertain you. I'm here to tell you what the living God has to say to you. And when the living God says things to us, it makes a claim on our life. And so we need to ask, Lord, in one sense, where am I in this story? What is the claim this story is making on my life? But, but here's where the where's Waldo approach, if that's, if that's your only approach, can get you in a lot of trouble. Because there's a danger Okay, The claim, the divinely intended effect of a particular story, please hear this church, is not found by first looking for us. Okay, It is found that the claim on our lives isn't found by first looking for us. The claim on our lives is found by looking for God. Where is God in this story? And I say that and I ask that question because God is always 
the main actor. That this book isn't primarily our story. It's God's story. We need to remember that. And there's spiritual guidance and application for us in these verses. But before they say anything about us, they say something about God. And here's what that something is. If I were to summarize it, I'd say it this way. God is faithful to deliver those who follow him by faith. God, it's the main actor in every story that you will ever read in this book. And the claim that that makes on our life is always found by asking first, not where am I, but where is God? And what God is up to and what God is doing and God is saying in this story, summarize this way, God is faithful to deliver those who follow him by faith. It was interesting after the sermon last Sunday, for those of you who are here, a a church member came up and said to me, you know, Matthew, part of what makes this Christian life thing so hard, see if you can relate to this, okay, is that often it seems like people who could care less what God says and who have absolutely no interest in honoring him with any part of their life, life seems to go just as well for them as it does for me. Here I am trying to honor God and follow him and and fight for godliness and obey his word. And it looks like they're just having a grand old time, an even better time than I am. What's up with that? It feels like God's blessings are randomly scattered across the world, reaching the wicked no less than the righteous. And and that experiencing his blessings is just like rolling a dice. I wonder wonder if my lotto number is going to come up. Well, I sympathize with that question, and considering it this week, I think there are two things the Bible says back in response. First, the God who made the world and everything in it is abundantly gracious toward all that he has made. Matthew 5, 45, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, right? And sends rain on the just and the unjust. Okay, second, while his common grace, God's common grace is is universal, the the warmth of the sun that nourishes life, the rain that falls on the earth to provide food, his saving grace is not. So spiritual salvation, the kind of rescue and deliverance we need in order for our sins to be forgiven and our relationship with God to be restored That grace, that saving grace, is a gift God gives in response to faith. Ephesians 2.9 For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's a gift of God. So if we read Genesis 14, we recognize, if you follow along with the story, God delivered Abram here in a remarkable way. Remarkable way. We're going to look at this. He, He experienced God's deliverance, but church, there's a reason he experienced the deliverance. That's what I want you to focus on. There's a reason he did. And that's this, that Abram chose the path of faith. Okay? He chose to believe that God is who he says he is and then to live accordingly. So so remember, Abram is not the main actor in the story. Remember that. But his example shows us how to relate to the one who is. 
so that like Abram, we too can experience God's deliverance, not just once, but every day of our life. Okay, that, that's the goal. So, so what is the kind of faith that experiences God's deliverance look like in action? That's where we're going today. Three points. Okay, well, what is the kind of faith that experiences God's deliverance? What's it look like in action? First, it looks like this. Faith overflows in a lifestyle of mercy. The kind of faith, you want to know, where's this path of faith, Williams, that if I'm walking on it, that's where I experience God's deliverance and blessing. Mark that thing out for me. Well, here's the first marker. The kind of faith that experiences the deliverance, the blessing, the favor of Almighty God is a faith that overflows in a lifestyle of mercy. What do I mean by that? Well, if you, if you look at Genesis 14, 1 through 12, there's a lot of names in here, but this is really important, okay? It gives you a picture of how fragile life was in the ancient Near East. And the amount of time that the author of Genesis spends in in giving us all these details and all these names, you know what all that is is designed to do in large part? It's designed to remind us that this isn't just a legend, right? It's It's history. It's real history because we serve a real God who is at work through real people in real time. The God that we gather to worship and listen to on Sunday morning is not a philosophical idea. He is the creator of the heaven and the earth, and he is more real than you are. He's before all things. He's after all things. You only have existence right now because he does not cease to exist. Daniel 2.21 reminds us That in history, we serve a God who changes times and seasons, who removes kings and sets up kings. So what do you have? You have Ketulamur of Elam and and three of his allies engaged with King Bera of Sodom and four of his allies in the Valley of Sidim. And the king of Elam wins a decisive victory and the king of Sodom and his allies just go booking it for the hills. They're, they're running away. And, and Ketulamur ransacks Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at verse 11. He takes all their possessions and, verse 12, they also took Lot. The son of Abram, his brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and they went on their way. And then what happens next is not an accident. Okay, it's like the book of Esther where the name of God hasn't appeared. Actually, if you read the book of Esther, the name of God hardly ever shows up. In the first 18 verses of Genesis 14, you won't find the name of God, but he is all over the place at work. And in verse 13, we don't just see good luck, we see a divine turn of events. Look at verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorites, Brother of Eshkel and honor, these were allies of Abram. Now, now if I'm Abram and Lot is my nephew and I get this messenger, and you know, it wasn't like he texted me. I mean, the guy's a mess. Maybe he has a finger, part of a hand missing. I don't know. It was a great big battle. And he's breathless and he shows up and Lot's got captured. All his stuff is gone, all his possessions. Here's what I'm thinking. Confession. Serves you Right, Lot. 
serves you right. You thought you were being all smart when you took the best of the land for yourself back in Genesis 13. It was your decision in Genesis 13, 12, to move your tents as far as Sodom. You knew those guys were wicked. You knew that at some point God would judge them for their sin, but you didn't listen. You kept right on doing whatever seemed good in your eyes. And eventually, you even moved into the city itself. How's that decision going for you right now? I told you so, love. But, but what do I know? I'm just an old uncle with a dumb phone. <laughs> what do I know? Well, I know it's time for you to taste a little bit of your own medicine. That'll teach you a lesson. Maybe the next time you face an important decision, you'll follow my example. You've, you've made your bed. Now, why in it, pal? Trust me, thoughts and prayers are with you. That's my temptation, okay? But look at verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. That, that response is presented in such a matter-of-fact way that we can just blow by the significance of that, okay? But we don't want to blow by that. Why? Because that's a picture of faith in action. It's a picture of faith in action. Why do I say that? Because his faith in God, please hear this, it compelled Abram to move toward the weak. It compelled him to move toward the suffering and to put everything that he had, including his own life, on the line in a radical expression of mercy. That's what that verse is saying. So, so think about it. What did Abram do back in Genesis 13? Well, he gave up all his rights as an older man. He sacrificed his comfort and ease for the sake of peace with his nephew Lot. He, he allowed Lot to choose the best of the land when Abram had every right to do that himself. And and that just begs the question, why on earth would Abram disadvantage himself like that when nothing was going to make him do that? We did it for the sake of peace with his kinsmen. His concern for the relationship and for peace in the relationship, it compelled him to, to lay down his rights for Lot's sake. For the sake of peace because he was confident that, that the Lord would provide for him. We, we saw this last Sunday, that his trust in the Lord's promise to take care of him freed him to lay down his rights to love other people. That's what faith did. But, but the stakes get even higher in Genesis 14, okay? Notice that. This time, Abram doesn't just lay down his rights for Lot's sake. What's he lay down? He puts his life, his possessions, and his entire household on the line in order to rescue Lot from what? The consequences of his own sin. Think about that. Abram's come a long way from Genesis 12, where he let his own wife get abducted to save his own skin. 
He's come a long way. He's now putting his very own life on the line for the sake of love. And the question we have to ask, church, is what's up with the change? From where does the makeover come? (laughs) What has shifted in Abram that causes him to go from throwing your wife under the bus to save your skin to putting your life on the line to deliver your nephew who is suffering the consequences of his own sin? Well, quite simply, church, the difference is the presence of faith. It's faith that does that. So follow me. When, When unbelief and fear are ruling our hearts, when we're not, we're not trusting the promises of God, what happens? We turn inward on ourselves, right? We turn inward. We remain enslaved to protecting our rights, our life, our stuff. What happens when faith is ruling our hearts? When we're trusting the promises of God? Well, we turn outward in sacrificial love toward others, starting with the people who are closest to us, okay? When we no longer need people for our own sake, we're free to love them for God's sake. That's what's happened. That's what faith does. And and we talked a little bit about that last Sunday, but, but there's an even deeper layer to that principle in chapter 14. And that's this, okay? Genuine faith. The kind of trust in God that that frees us to love other people, it overflows in a lifestyle of mercy. It makes us merciful. Notice Abram's faith, it didn't free him to love Lot in a generic sense. It freed him to love Lot when his nephew was suffering the consequences of his own sin. When he was getting what he deserved. And I really want us to make the connection here, okay? So so think of it this way. There is an inseparable relationship. You you can't separate these things between faith and mercy. Between a person who is full of faith and a person who is merciful. It, It works like this. Mercy toward man only grows in the soil of humility before God. I like, I, I like to garden, and if you've gardened at all, you will learn, Lowe's doesn't teach you this, but you will learn <laughs> that certain plants require certain kinds of soil. Don't get it mixed up. Wrong plant, wrong soil, won't grow. Well, if you want mercy to be growing in your life, that fruit, that plant only grows in a certain kind of soil. Mercy toward man only grows in the soil of humility before God. And humility before God is a fruit of faith in God. Let me explain this, okay? Think carefully here. If you think that a life of spiritual blessing is something you earn for yourself, okay? Something you merit through moral choices, something you, you've secured through personal holiness, as opposed to something that you receive from God as a gift, then you will never be humble. You will always be self-righteous. Why? Because in your mind, everything that you have, everything you have, you earned. You weren't a fool. You didn't move into Sodom. Newsflash, therefore, you still have all of your possessions. 
you know what can't grow? When that kind of self-righteousness is present in our heart, where faith is absent, mercy can't grow. Can't grow. If you believe that blessing is something you earn from God through your performance instead of something you receive from God as a gift, you will never show mercy the way Abram showed mercy. Why not? Because in your mind, Lot hasn't done what it takes to deserve it. It's only those who believe that everything we have is a gift from Almighty God, received through faith, that have the necessary humility to practice mercy, to show sacrificial love to those who do not deserve it. And that's exactly what Abram did. Look back at verse 14. He personally leads forth all the men in his household who've been trained for war on a rescue mission for his nephew. And you know what would have happened if Abram had lost? That battle? Think about that. He would have suffered Lot's fate or worse along with his entire household. So, so if you, scholars think that just based on the number of fighting men he had in his household, you know, we think household and think nuclear family picket fence. Uh-uh, okay? If you've got 300-some fighting men in your household, it was likely that everyone was responsible for a whole group of over 1,000 souls. And he puts all of that on the line to go try to rescue someone who is suffering because they sinned. That's radical mercy. And notice, though his faith in God fueled that mercy, that it didn't make Abram throw caution to the wind. There's no sense in which faith and wisdom are opposed to one another here, right? So what did he do? He wisely divided his forces. He attacked by night. He pursued the enemy while he was tired. But he didn't go into self-protection mode. He didn't start asking, I wonder how much Lot deserves in this situation. Because Abram knew that all the blessings he had were what? They were a gift from God. They're a gift from God. And that sort of humble faith gave him courage, power, to, to lay down his life, to put his household on the line, to risk all that he had to meet Lot at the point of his need. Please hear this, church. Genuine faith doesn't ask, what does that person deserve? Genuine faith overflows in a lifestyle of mercy. Why? Because those who are living by faith know that there is nothing that you have that you have not received as a gift from Almighty God. And guess what? When everything you have, somebody else gave to you, it is a lot easier to give it away. To lay it down. You ever notice that? If, if, if someone gives you a car, and then someone else says, hey, can I borrow your car? Isn't there something in your heart? Oh, well, yeah, I... It was a gift to me, it's a gift to you. Where do we get in trouble when we start thinking, no, I earned that blessing. I, I, I worked hard, I got that. The one explanation for all those things is that I obtained them. I didn't make all those dumb choices. I followed you, God. Be careful. One of the, the first marks of genuine faith, the faith that experiences God's deliverance, it's a lifestyle of mercy. Point number two. Second characteristic of this faith Faith recognizes God 
as the source of every blessing. I alluded to this, but let's just think about this for a minute, okay? The the tension that's building in the first half of 14, it's resolved in a single verse. Look at verse 16. Abram beats Ketelamer and his allies, verse 16. Then Abram brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Okay, that is a pretty incredible military victory. Don't don't miss that, okay? So just think about what verse 16 means. That means that Abram now has all the possessions. All the chips. You know, it's like if you're playing poker, he's his mound. I mean, it's just, it's all Abram's. And all of Lot's stuff is Abram's. And all of Sodom and Gomorrah's stuff, it's Abram's plus the women and other people whom he rescued from the four kings. So you could summarize that by saying, Abram is loaded. His, his strategy worked perfectly. I mean, they didn't have newspapers back then, right? But, but you could just imagine the headlines, aging nomad routes four king alliance. You know, it's just, it was amazing what happened. Quite the victory for an old guy. And when he returns to the Oaks of Mamre, two kings come out to him. At first, the king of Sodom. Second, the king of Salem. Look at verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. Now, Melchizedek, his identity, his origin, in large part, it's an enigma. I don't have any trick in the box to pull out and, well, you may not have known this, but actually Melchizedek, we we know very little about Melchizedek. We're simply told that he's what? A priest of God most high. You know what that reminds us, church? That reminds us that when we think God's activity is limited to one person in one place, a la Abram, he's actually at work all over the place. Okay, remember that. God was working in this king's life, king of Salem, And what Melchizedek says to Abram in verses 19 and 20 confirms his identity as a priest king in two ways. So check it out. What's this guy do? First, he mediates God's favor. Announcing the blessing of God on the people of God. Look at verse 19. And he, Melchizedek, blessed him, Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high. So he's mediating the blessing of God to the people of God. He's announcing the blessing of God, the favor of God, to the people of God. First way, he's a priest king. Second, he proclaims God's word to God's people. And he reveals something of critical importance about who the Lord is. Look at verse 19. Blessed be Abram by God most high, who is what? Who is this God? He's the possessor or creator of heaven and earth. Now, why is that important for Abram? Think about that. All the things this priest-king guy could say. Who is God? I mean, that's like the biggest fill-in-the-blank in the world, right? He's the possessor, Abram, of heaven and earth. Well, I would argue, church, that that announcement, that word, 
was exceedingly relevant for Abram for the same reason that it's exceedingly relevant for you and me. Why is that? Well, it's because it explains the reason God is able to bless us. I love how the word of God never just says, well, because. You ever been taking care of a young child and why do I have to eat apples? I wanted strawberries. Because. <laughs> I loved it the other day, our little three-year-old Tyler. He asked the question, some question and then before I could even answer it, he goes, because. <laughs> I thought, bingo, you got it. Wear the t-shirt. The word of God does leave many things that we'd like to know a mystery, right? But it answers a lot of why questions too if we're willing to slow down and listen. And, and this, verse 19, answers one of them. Why is God able to bless you? I mean, think about it. If somebody who doesn't have a dollar to their name promised you a new house, what would you think? Uh, I think I'd be skeptical. What if Jeff Bezos promised you a new house? What if he said it was like his fifth house? <laughs> You'd be excited, right? Why? Because your expectations of the gift are informed by your understanding of the resources of the giver. It's the way we work. Friend, if God has blessed you, if he has said that his face is shining upon you, that he's for you, that he's not against you, that he's not going to withhold any good thing from you. Guess what kind of resources the God who makes those promises to you in Jesus Christ has at his disposal? The heavens and the earth. That's all. <laughs> I mean, you think Jeff Bezos can pull some strings? Think of it this way. God owns Jeff Bezos. <laughs> Why? Because God created Jeff Bezos. <laughs> Just like God created you and me. We, we don't own anything, right? Jeff Bezos doesn't own anything. It's all the Lord's. It's all his. And, and just like the U.S. Patent and Trademark Offices ensure that if you create something, you retain the rights as to how that's going to get used, so too the fact that Almighty God created all that we see gives him the right to use all that we see and govern and direct all that we see for his glory and your good in Jesus Christ. And when the God who's the possessor of heaven and earth proclaims a blessing upon you, mm. <laughs> look out! Look out! Why? Because not only are his blessings infinitely great because he is great, but there's nothing in heaven or on earth that can get in the way of that blessing. Why? Back to the doctrine of creation. Because he made all of it, he owns all of it, and he's in charge of all. That's why. And so in the same way you use your possessions to, to achieve, you bend them according to the purpose of your will, your car, you drive it where you want it to go, your house, you use it the way you want it to use it. 
so God bends the heavens and the earth in complete alignment with his purposes. All of it. A.W. Tozer once said, famous quote, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you, right? I actually don't agree with that. I mean, I do in part, <laughs> but, but I think it makes more sense to reverse the question, friends. What comes into God's mind when he thinks about you is the most important thing about you. What comes to his mind? Why? Because whether he is for you or he is against you is the most important thing about you. And we, we have this notion as Americans, right? We have this notion that God is what? He, he's just this cosmic kind of universal force up in heaven and, and he's generically offending no one and trying to, you know, with his limited but substantial powers, just trying to be like grandpa and, and help those who help themselves. That is a lie from the evil one. It's not who God is. God is not for everyone. And blessing, in a saving, delivering sense, an eternal sense, everyone. He's not. Okay, remember what I said at the beginning. God's, God's blessing, God's deliverance, God's favor, God's help, it doesn't just land willy-nilly all over the universe. It's directed somewhere. Where is it directed? It's directed to those who are following him by faith. It has a landing strip. It's only faith in God that receives the favor of God and experiences the, the blessings of God. Friends, those things don't come because you're a nice person. <laughs> they don't become, become because you, you make better choices than your family ever did, okay? Or that, that you're doing all these good works. The promise of God's blessing comes to us through faith, Hebrews 6, 12. It is through faith that we inherit the promises. What sort of faith is that? Well, it is a trust, a confidence that's focused on the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what that faith is. And, and Hebrews 7, 21, don't turn there, but you can look at it later. It identifies Jesus as the ultimate priest, right? The, the one that Melchizedek foreshadowed and the one that was spoken of in Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, speaking of Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And Hebrews 7.25 adds, Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you realize that's what faith does? Faith, what, what does faith do? It draws near to God, through the work of Jesus Christ, the work he accomplished at the cross. And, and when you draw near to the Father through faith in the Son, you know what then happens? Here's what happens. The Son pleads the merit of his shed blood on your behalf, securing the eternal blessing and favor and for you-ness of the God who owns heaven and earth. That's crazy. That's what faith does. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us willy-nilly no matter what you do or what you say or what you think about God. 
No, who's blessed us where? In Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's through faith in Christ and Christ alone that you will experience the deliverance and blessing and favor of God. And Melchizedek's words reminded Abram of that, right? Look back at verse 20. Back at verse 20. This victory wasn't ultimately Abram's. The achievement wasn't ultimately Abram's. The victory and achievement was the Lord's. Verse 20, blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Remember the main point. What what characterizes faith? What marks it? Faith recognizes God is the source of all our blessings. And notice, Abram expresses his complete agreement with Melchizedek by doing what? Giving him a, a tenth of all the spoil. It was Abram's way of tangibly declaring, Lord, this victory, this blessing, it's a gift from your hand. That's what he was saying. And, and friends, whenever we bring, as we did earlier this morning, whenever we bring our, our tithes or our offerings, our gifts to the Lord, we're doing the same thing. The same thing, okay? We're, we're joining Abram and recognizing, Lord, you are the source of all my blessings. Every, every provision, every deliverance, It comes as a gift from you. And when we give back to the Lord, we're expressing our faith, our trust. We're saying, Lord, the money I received this week, it isn't my money. It's your money. Why? Because you're the possessor of the heavens and the earth. And I'm giving the first portion of it back to you, not because I've paid all my other bills and it's convenient, but as a way of honoring you first and reminding my forgetful, arrogant heart that while I worked my tail off this week to earn that money that feels so small and so limited, Lord Jesus, I believe by faith, all of that was a gift from your hand. Faith recognizes God is the source of all our blessings. Not just in military stuff or finances, all of life. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. You know who the Father of lights is? It's the God who created the stars. Possessor of heaven and earth. God is the source of every blessing. Here's the last characteristic of genuine faith. Receives God's blessing. Point number three, faith waits to receive the gift in a way that glorifies the giver. I'll say that again. Faith waits to receive the gift in a way that glorifies the giver. Look at verse 21. What do you got here? The king of Sodom comes out, greets Abram with a demand. He tries to cut a deal. King of Salem came out to celebrate bread and wine. The king of Sodom tries to cut a deal. Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Think about that offer. Give me the persons, man, but take all the goods for yourself. Well, technically, Abram had the right to all of it, and the king of Sodom was being ridiculously arrogant because he hightailed it to the hills and didn't do anything. (laughs) But it's all in Abram's possession, and yet, if I'm Abram, I'm thinking back to Genesis 12 too, where God said something like this, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And so if I see the king of Sodom saying, take all this stuff, 
Here's what I'm thinking. Thank you, Jesus. Right? Lord, today's my lucky day. For a while, I thought I was stuck there with the short end of the stick after Lot chose the best land, but, but now the tide is finally turned. All the possessions of Sodom, everything Lot's been enjoying this whole time, they're finally mine. I mean, after all, Lord, you did promise to bless me, so, so I'm just going to assume that this is your way of, of providing for me, you know, making my name great and all. He didn't do that. He refused. He had the entire wealth of Sodom at his disposal, and he wouldn't take it. Why not? Look at verse 22. King, I've lifted my hand to the Lord. God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Do you, do you realize, friends, there was something Abram wanted more than God's gifts? He wanted God's glory. He wasn't just interested in getting God in his back pocket so God could make his life beautiful. That, that's called the genie approach to God. There's nothing remotely humble about that, by the way. He hungered for the glory of the giver more than the possession of the gift. And he knew something, right? Abram knew that if he took all the possessions of Sodom, that Bera and his people would be able to say in coming years, all that stuff Abram has, well, we gave it to him. I mean, technically he had a right to it, but it was ours to begin with, so he's only great because we made him great. And Abram will have none of that. Why not? Because he doesn't, want just, he doesn't just want God's gift. He wants God's gift given in God's way unto God's glory. That's what's in his heart. He's not supremely interested in getting blessing from God. He's supremely interested in receiving blessing from God in a way that glorifies God and only in a way that glorifies God. So, so he refuses an offer from the king who controlled all the wealth of Sodom to receive and trust the offer of the king who possesses heaven and earth. You realize faith in God is anything but irrational? Do you ever think about that? How many times does somebody say, well, you know, you should walk by faith. It's kind of a leap in the dark. And if it works for losers like you, have at it. That's not faith. Faith is eminently rational. Why? Because when you are talking about the God who possesses heaven and earth, you are a fool if you don't trust him. He owns all of it. Why, why would you look to the king of Sodom, even with all that stuff, and say, that's better? Faith is eminently rational. You're going to be confronted with this choice again and again, friend. Will you do whatever it takes? Here's the choice, okay? We'll end with this. Will you do whatever it takes to obtain the gift as soon as possible? Or will you wait until God gives you the gift in a way that glorifies him? Now, lest that all be theory, two illustrations. Follow me. First, take marriage. Okay, help me out here. Is marriage between one man and one wife a good thing? Yes, that was a little weak. 
Is marriage between one man and one wife a good thing? Yes. If you're single, is a desire for marriage a good thing? Okay, you're fading on me. If you're single, is a desire for marriage a good thing? Absolutely. Absolutely. But what are we tempted to do? We're tempted to take that good thing, blessing, gift, marriage, and we make that our functional God such that we are willing to do anything we have to do to get it. If it means showing a little more skin to make the boys pay attention, so be it. If it means sleeping with your boyfriend to keep him happy, so be it. Whatever it takes, whatever I have to do, I don't care how I get a spouse or who is glorified in the process. I just want to be married. We do that. Here's another example. Okay, take financial security. Is financial security a good thing? Yes, good, we're on a roll here, okay? Is it a gift from God? Yes. If you're married with children, is it a desire to work hard so your family has financial security a good thing? Absolutely, but what are we tempted to do? What are we tempted to do? We're tempted to take a good thing, financial security, and make it our functional God such that we are willing to do anything that looks necessary in order to get it. If it means missing church on Sundays... So be it. If it means working way more hours than your wife, your doctor, your kids, or your own conscience, believe is responsible and healthy, so be it. Whatever it takes, whatever you have to do, I I don't care how I get the money or who is glorified in the process, I have to have financial security. Friend, if you're not willing, if you're not willing to wait to receive God's gift in a way that glorifies God, you are not walking by faith. You're not walking by faith. You're not trusting the Lord at all. You're you're either trusting yourself or you're trusting other people. And that is why you are so crazy anxious. That is why you are fearful. That's why you feel enslaved. The problem isn't what you want. The problem is that you're trying to be God instead of waiting for God. Because faith waits to receive the gift in a way that glorifies the giver. Remember that. Faith overflows in a lifestyle of mercy. It recognizes God as the source of every blessing and it waits to receive the gift in a way that glorifies the giver. That's what faith looks like in action. And friends, that's precisely the kind of faith that God meets with a shout of deliverance and an outpouring of mercy. That faith. It's not random, God's deliverance. His blessing isn't willy-nilly. It's the reward of faith. And it challenges us to ask, please ask this morning, am I living by that kind of faith? Does my life demonstrate a pattern of mercy? And am I willing to wait for God's blessings in God's way for the sake of God's glory? That's the test. And I implore you, friends, 
please choose very carefully because the Lord is the possessor of heaven and earth. And every blessing that you have, it's, it's a gift from him and he will not fail to give what is good to all who trust him. So I exhort you, I charge you, stop trusting yourself, okay? Start trusting the Lord. Walk by faith because your God is the possessor of heaven and earth. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that as we respond to your word and sing this song that collectively we would right now join Abram in lifting our hands to you. The possessor of heaven and earth. Jesus, help us to follow you by faith. We pray that our faith would overflow in a lifestyle of mercy. We pray that our faith would recognize that you were the source of every good thing. And we pray, Lord, most of all, that our faith would only hunger for your gifts and your way for your glory. Forgive us where we have sought to use our faith to manipulate you or pointed to our faith or our prayers or our faithfulness as some sort of claim we have against you or on you. God, you're the creator. How dare we try to twist your arm? And we thank you that because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, we don't have to twist it. But you laid down your life, you laid down your rights, you laid down your privileges, you laid down your comforts, that we might know through faith in Christ the eternal, unmerited, and abundant smile of the favor of the possessor of the heavens and the earth. Forgive us where we have arrogantly questioned your trustworthiness. Help us to call upon you alone as our great salvation. Amen.